The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gayed, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Deepak Shinoy, uh, founder and CEO of uh, a firm that runs money in India, has a book as well. Uh, Deepak, first time you and I are speaking, uh, introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Uh, who are you? How did you get interested in markets? Um, and how is India looking recently? Oh, thanks, Michael. And um, uh, so quick history about me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a computer engineer. So uh, I started in the tech world. And uh, my first company, uh, you know, we built accounting software packages, uh, largely for companies in India and around the world. And then got interested enough in finance to then go down the investment route, uh, uh, set up an algo uh, trading hedge fund in India in 2007, 2008. Uh, and since then, uh, you know, we started, I started Capital Mind as a more retail oriented uh, um, uh, investment uh, investment research service initially, and eventually we uh, got around to managing money. We manage about one thousand crore rupees, which is about a hundred and twenty million dollars. Um, uh, very small by U.S. standards, but uh, uh, okay by kind of Indian standards. So, so we manage that money in investing in Indian markets primarily. Uh, uh, Indians have a little more uh, complicated as a path if you want to invest outside of India. So most of our investments, in fact, all, all of the money we manage is in, invested inside India. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the my journey has largely been coming from the quantitative world. So we look at data a lot to make decisions. We even run a quantitative strategy, which is uh, based on the momentum factor, and we use momentum to kind of build portfolios uh, in 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 the Indian markets, uh, and uh, that's done fairly well in the last few years. It's only been about three years now, but uh, even uh, the actual performance and the past performance has been quite uh, quite reasonably uh, decent uh, over the last uh, few years. Of course, the last two years have been very kind uh, to Indian markets, especially. And I can tell you a little more about the Indian market. The Indian markets actually done very well in comparison in rupee terms uh, in comparison with uh, say the US markets because the US markets are I think down 20 we're down about 20-25% the Nasdaq was down about 35 uh, the Indian markets were I think down at a max um, 
they were only about 15 or 16 percent down and right now they're about uh, less than 10 percent down from the all-time highs uh last year so um relatively speaking the markets have been good uh, uh a quick note about india we're a relatively small stock market our uh, total uh, stock market uh, you know market cap would probably be around i think around three trillion dollars uh, uh, relatively speaking, though, the volumes that trade on the Indian markets on a daily basis are probably of the order of 8 to $9 billion a day, which is, uh, compared to the U.S. markets, a fraction of what trades there. Um, largest participants in our markets, one of the largest participants on daily trading in our markets are actually retail investors. So they tend to be about 33 to 34% of daily trading volumes. Uh, the rest are by institutional players, uh, uh, including brokers, uh, 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 you know, mutual funds and hedge funds, and foreign institutional investors who are actually categorized differently. Um, so the single largest block happens to be retail investors. So it's a very retail-oriented market as well. Uh, uh, the economy itself has been doing uh, relatively well. Now, what's happened in the last few years has been uh, that India, uh, you know, as much as COVID has hurt us. Uh, there hasn't been so much in terms of fiscal support uh, to the uh, Indian you know, economy and the population. So in comparison, we don't have that much inflation right now as compared to most of the West and uh, the US. So India's inflation is actually 7.4%. And it's been around that for a while, while uh, most, I think the US is at 8 point something and uh, uh it's a little bit higher in some of the other countries, but uh, what's happened because of this is, you know, uh, uh, we don't, it is not a lot of the stuff that's hurting uh, in terms of interest rates uh, in the West. The sudden spike in interest rates has not been quite that uh, spiky for us, although we have seen interest rates go up. So uh, our interest rates were already relatively high, we're at about four, four and four, four and a half percent. Now we've gone to six percent, which isn't as much. Uh, in comparison with the rest. So currently the markets are in a very interesting phase where we seem to have decoupled from the damage in most of the world markets. I think next to Indonesia, it's uh, the best performing market uh, uh, in 2022. Um, I just leave it there because I've talked a lot. So I'll no, no, let you take it. And I'm curious in that, in that transition of your career from the technical engineering side to the investment management side, what were some of the things that you would uh, look to to educate yourself? In other words, what kind of resources are available for investors in India? I mean, obviously one can go the route of like a CFA charter or something that's more standardized, but what kind of educational resources are available in India relative to maybe other parts of the world? Oh, yeah. So we have like the CFA charter. There's an, there's an accountancy course here called the CA course, which is uh, uh, more on the accounting end, but that's one piece. Now there are a lot more educational courses, including uh, chartered financial professional. Uh, you even have, uh, a, you know, a technical anal analyst uh, uh, kind of uh, certifications that also have come up. When I started out, it wasn't so much. Uh, they were only, you know, broad MBA courses, which, uh, uh, you know, kind of gave you a grounding into some of the things. Uh, derivatives, for instance, India is one of the largest uh, single stock options markets in the world. Uh, you know, in, uh, so a lot of trading happens in single stock options and most of that trading happens by retail investors as well. And because of that, you know, the 
the amount of education that's actually started to come out uh, has, is quite dramatic because you both have tools uh, uh, that help you uh, navigate the option markets. And also, um, uh, you also have uh, tools that help you, uh, I mean, sorry, you also have books and courses and certifications around derivatives now. But it wasn't so easy early on because you were pretty much, you know, 2004 is when derivatives actually started making any meaningful sense in India. And from then it's gone about, I think, maybe 500x in terms of volumes uh, since then. So a lot of the resources and the education had to come up along the way. So now there are about 10 different certification courses that help you uh, uh, understand the derivatives market. Uh, India is one of the highest margined markets in the world. So a lot of the, um, like for instance, you cannot go uh, naked short in India the way you can in the U.S., uh, there are lots of rules against it. So what happens over here is that uh, uh, a lot of the derivatives market is limited uh, by a lot of rules that the uh, Indian equivalent of SEC, which is called SEBI, the Securities and Exchange Board of India, SEBI actually puts in a lot of rules that restrict the amount of leverage that is possible. So a lot of the things that happened in the US, like what happened to brokers when the GameStop saga happened, uh, can't happen here. Uh, simply because they would have not allowed those trades to have happened a lot earlier than they did. Uh, and we don't have the same kind of market maker uh, complexities uh, that kind of bring that leverage to the fore. So there's that, um, yeah, that part of the system has actually evolved because India had a lot of issues with this in the past and therefore the rules have been set in now. Uh, but, you know, my journey itself was... You know, you had to learn because you didn't have so much in terms of both internet resources. In fact, I learned a lot about options from U.S. Uh, market trading sites. And then we figured out that in India, things are very, very different. So we had to modify a lot of the tooling and a lot of um, uh, a lot of the way options were traded uh, to suit Indian dynamics. So a lot of trading strategies that work very well in India will probably not work at all in the U.S. option markets. And what works very well in the U.S. option markets don't work very well here. So this is a process of discovery that happened over, you know, a long period of time. Uh, of course, now uh, a fund manager, uh, as we are, we are, we are called a portfolio management service. Uh, this is like a managed account service in the U.S., we are not allowed uh, to easily take derivative exposure because it involves leverage and we can't take any leverage in our products. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's still a very, very big market. So part of our research goes towards that as well. Yeah, that, that is, and I, I'm, this is part, partly me educating myself on this and listening to you. I didn't realize that there are more regulatory limits to leverage when it comes to uh, India's stock market than than our markets here in the States. And I would actually argue if that's the case, that that oddly enough makes India more, to use a Nassim Taleb term, anti-fragile, right? Because oftentimes the the tail risks come from leverage. And if you limit leverage, you're less likely to have the real nasty and sharp declines. And obviously India's had many sharp declines like, just like everybody else, but um, that leverage component is an important one to fragility. 
I'd say yes, uh, but you know there are disadvantages of it as well because when you don't allow a lot of leverage to happen, a lot of good things don't happen to you. So um, you know sometimes the good offsets the bad. So it isn't altogether roses, but yes, of course they've they've managed to do it, and I think it's fair because for instance you can't have a hundred and forty percent short interest in a stock in India. It just won't happen because everything gets stopped out at about twenty percent. So. Um, you can't have more stock short than the uh, than the than stock that has been issued in by the company in the first place, which is uh, astounding to me because it doesn't make any logical sense. But it was possible in the U.S., so um, uh, you know that part maybe was an extreme form of leverage. But then having only twenty percent short allowed is also a little too little too little. If you ask me, so you know, uh, you you have to balance it out, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, there's good parts about this controlling leverage thing, and there's bad parts about it. And I think right now, because the world seems to be in turmoil, it just seems that we're doing well because of it. Why is it that so much of the trading is driven by retail, which you alluded to many times, as sort of the largest block of of volume? Is it is it a function of there not being as robust a financial advisor community in India? Is it a function of easier access or even just smaller account sizes? Talk about why you think that that's the case. So multiple things. I think you got uh, – so for instance, the institutional framework itself has taken a lot of time to set up. For for the longest time, ETFs weren't very popular. So uh, uh, exchange-traded funds, which are created largely by the mutual uh, – by companies that run mutual funds in India, uh, they didn't pay too much attention to it. And only now are you seeing a lot of ETFs come about, which track indexes. So in a way, that part of the whole uh, – uh, retail investing uh, framework, which would have gone through ETFs, would uh, uh, sometimes comes directly into the market. Secondly, retail participants have traditionally had a lot more capability for leverage. Individual leverage has always been much higher because brokers offer much higher margin trade possibilities to uh, retail investors compared to institutional investors, including like us. Uh, we are a PMS, a portfolio management service. We can't use any leverage. But for instance, if you bring in, let's say, the equivalent of, uh, of say, $10,000 uh, as a retail investor, they might, and in the earlier times, they could allow you to trade up to a million dollars worth on the same day. So you could do intraday trading. And this was what drove a lot of retail trading. People... Uh, uh, used and sometimes abused this leverage to build, uh, you know, huge trading volumes, which is also why there's a difference between what is intraday traded and what is actually delivered at the end of the day. Many stocks, you might find only 10 to 20% of the volume is delivered at the end of the day and uh, remaining 80% is traded in intraday. And this is largely by retail participants. This also means that retail participants don't end up holding a lot of stock. They just trade it in and out. So if you look at the whole Indian stock market, uh, you know, kind of holdings of all the large companies or all the companies in India, only about 10% is held by retail investors. Around uh, uh, half is held by the founders of the companies. We have a very high founder component compared to the rest of the world. So 50% of uh, all, you know, the total public stock is actually held by the founders of the companies themselves. And uh, uh, 10% is by retail investors, around 15 or 
percent is by Indian domestic institutions, including mutual funds and so on. And now 25%, the remaining 25% is held by foreign institutional investors. This must have come down in the last maybe six or eight months. Uh, But that's roughly the framework. Um, So retail investors don't end up holding a lot of stock. They just end up trading a lot of it because they get a lot more leverage. Uh, There's also the fact that... uh, um, the number of players that were allowed to actually like do managed accounts and so on, there's a lot of restrictions on how they can operate. So um, uh, as a PMS, for instance, I cannot buy and sell a stock on the same day. I have to actually buy it. And only when it is settled, which is two days later, can I sell the stock. But uh, a retail investor does not have the same restriction. So they can buy today and sell tomorrow. And that's perfectly fine. So uh, these restrictions uh, make it easier for retail investors to trade compared to institutions. So, uh, you know, like you were saying, sometimes the rules, you know, they, they work against us. And perhaps that's why the institutional market hasn't grown quite as much. Uh, to just give you an example of how skewed it is, there is a... Uh, India's largest mutual fund, the one that invests in uh, the top 50 stocks, called the Nifty 50, uh, an ETF that invests in the Nifty 50, it has assets of around, I think, about 25 uh, to $25 billion right now. Uh, the next highest uh, assets owning, owned by any mutual fund is probably of the order of $8 billion. So it's substantially lower. But one US ETF, I think it's called Indy or Ind A or something like that, which owns only Indian stocks, that has more assets under management converted to rupees than all Indian mutual funds except one. So relatively speaking, the mutual fund market is really tiny. It's growing, but uh, uh, it's really tiny in comparison with anything that you see in the US uh, or in the West, actually. So... Um, in a way, our institutions are still developing. So you're getting, uh, you know, I think the retail investors will eventually become a much smaller part of the ecosystem. They used to be 50%, now they're 33%. They'll probably, India, I mean, in, like Asia, I think even Korea has a very large retail investor component. So in India will always have that, uh, you know, at least 20, 25% of daily volumes being driven by retail. I just don't know if it'll be, uh, it'll go down to the 1% or 2% levels. Uh, lastly, it's algo trading's a relatively new phenomenon here. And again, it's also severely restricted. So um, the kind of algorithmic trades or high-frequency trading that happens in the US does not happen here. All trades have to be cleared at the exchange level. So you can't have payment for order flow like it happens in the US um, in any meaningful way. We have an equivalent, but that's it's not... It's nowhere as popular. So given that, you know, uh, I think given the high frequency trades, uh, because they don't happen across, uh, um, uh, you know, in the same way, uh, uh, we've we've not had that kind of institutional volumes come in and take over the markets either. I find this whole thing actually fascinating at this point that you mentioned about 80% is not settled. So it's basically a bunch of effectively day trading that's happening. I'm curious, what, what do you... Why is that? Is it is it that there's some aspect culturally of of India where there's a more of a gambling mentality, which I would argue is what day trading more often is? Is it a function of 
less education, again, smaller or larger account sizes. Why is it that you have so much short-termism? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Oh, yeah, it's it's probably a combination. There's a lot of account sizes are really small. So we have uh, roughly 100, cro- 100 million uh, trading accounts in India. Um, but then the number of active traders in that, number of act- people actually doing da- trades on a regular basis is a fraction of it. It's probably uh, half a million uh, people that, that are actually, or maybe a million people that are active on any given day. And a lot of them just come into the market to gamble, to do what is called jobbing or trading. They just uh, do day trades and earn some money. Earlier, there used to be people who used to just arbitrage between two exchanges uh, using two terminals uh, of each individual exchange. And now, of course, much of that has gone algorithmic. But uh, uh, even now, there are people who will uh, play short-term trades in the markets uh, simply based on tips, uh, by people who just say, well, you know, you should buy the stock and you should buy something else and sell it for this much in a day and so on. And because of the leverage they're afforded by their brokers, sometimes which used to be 100 is to 1, now I think it's gone down to maybe 5 to 1. So if you put in $100, you get $500 worth of stock that you can buy and sell. So uh, you might, you know, you, you might end up um, making a significantly higher return if so it's it's a bit of a gambling thing as well, but there's also the fact that uh, uh, a lot of players, uh, you know, they don't have the capital to sustain. So if you're on borrowed capital, you're trading on margin, you have to square off your trade by the end of the day because you brought in so little capital by yourself. So account sizes are small. We don't have, for instance, a 401k equivalent uh, here, so we can't put anything into a retirement account and trade, use that money to trade directly into the stock markets. Our equivalent of a 401k is more like a pension plan. You have to uh, uh, choose a pension provider who will actually then go and uh, uh, buy stocks on the exchange uh, uh, themselves. So you can't determine which stocks are bought in your own retirement account. You just have to give them the money and let them manage it. So you don't have the 401k equivalent. So that, I think, is one of the big things that drove a lot of uh, 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 long-termism into the U.S. markets as well. Uh, and that came in the 80s, I think. And we still don't have one equivalent there. So, uh, And, of course, to a very large extent, India didn't have the population that had enough money to play uh, to, to invest in stocks for the longest time. Most Indian savings would go into real estate and gold. It's only in the last about eight or nine years that things have changed quite dramatically. Um, and real estate and gold are less in favor and uh, stocks are more in favor. In fact, for the last one year, uh, one of the reasons why the Indian stock markets have stood up, uh, stood out and not fallen quite as much is because Indian domestic investors have 
uh, been putting money into stocks literally every month. Um, so much so that they've overridden the global funds that have taken out money from Indian stocks. And uh, I think about $25 billion moved out of Indian stocks in the last uh, one year or so. And uh, Indian investors have actually, this is unprecedented. They've never done something like this in the past. They've actually put in just about as much money into mutual funds, which then have gone on to buy stocks, apart from buying stocks themselves, which is probably what supported the market from falling too much in the first place. So it's, it's you know, probably the early stages of being uh, seeing some long-termism, but uh, nowhere close to, you know, what the U.S. is. Yeah, very, very interesting. Okay, so we talk about leverage from a trading investing perspective for uh, those in India uh, in their local markets. Talk about leverage for the companies themselves among these large, mid, and small cap companies, and maybe sort of describing sort of the the structure of uh, the India stock market in terms of uh, the concentration of large versus small cap companies, average market cap. Just educate the audience a little bit. Cool. Okay. So I think I have, I, I don't have exact numbers here, but the top 50 stocks are roughly 85% of India's uh, uh, total market cap. And the top 100 are about 92%, I think, or 90-91% of the total market cap of the Indian company. So what you would call an S&P 500 would effectively be, in, be India's top 50 or top 100. Uh, uh, we have about 2,000 companies listed, but uh, again, volumes, if you look at the first uh, 50 companies, the highest would be, well, about $200 billion dollars. I think, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers. And then the smallest among the top 50 uh, is probably of the order of $10 billion. So $10 billion in the US would be like a mid cap or a small cap, but $10 billion in India would actually make it one of the top 50 companies uh, uh, in India. Um, uh, the next 50 companies, which would, be, which would make the rest of the 100, would probably be, um, again, of the order, uh, maybe about between 6 billion to 10 billion and uh, the mid cap universe which is uh, uh, what we call india's stocks between 100 and stock number 250 in terms of market capitalization would uh, be between 2 and 6 billion dollars and less than 2 billion dollars are small cap so it's relatively a smaller size of the markets and um, a lot of these companies uh, you know, what, what's happened to us is some of the largest companies in India have been uh, uh, companies that have very little debt or no debt, similar to the U.S. perhaps because, Amazon, uh, you know, I think uh, Apple has only, you know, uh, debt for the purpose of keeping, uh, you know, the cash outside the U.S., but otherwise they're not actually, they're debt-free to include their cash. Uh, Google's a debt-free company and so is uh, Facebook and a bunch of others. India's top uh, IT services companies are all debt-free. They're very cash-rich. Uh, TCS, Infosys, uh, Wipro and the like. A lot of uh, um, car manufacturers in India have no debt on their own books. Uh, and therefore, a lot of the leverage in our, in our, in our top few, uh, top 50 companies is just by financial entities like banks or non-banking, you know, what you might call a shadow bank in the U.S., uh, non-banking lending entity. Uh, uh, a significant number of oil players also have very little debt. 
uh, or very little net debt because you know the oil prices shooting up in the last few years has kind of helped them reduce their debt substantially. So uh, one thing that happened in the 2012-2015 kind of time frame was an introduction of a bankruptcy act. India did not have one, so you couldn't actually declare bankruptcy. So to a certain extent, uh, when a company borrowed too much, there was no, you know, there was no way to say, I'll get rid of some of this debt. So you had to make a deal with every single bank that had given you a loan and say, well, can you write off some of this, please? Because I'm not going to survive if that doesn't happen and so on. There was no framework to actually resolve a company. And this resolution framework is called the Indian Bankruptcy Code or IBC that came about uh, in the last decade. And because that came about, uh, banks were able to say, well, if you don't pay us, we're going to take your company, we're going to sell it to someone else. And that someone else is going to bid for the company in this bankruptcy framework and then take uh, take it to the next level, um, you know, take over the company and you know, uh, pay us back whatever they can. Uh, this framework resulted in a lot of companies uh, 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 who were over leveraged being resolved, being sold to other players, and so on. So uh, the uh, the idea earlier was that companies would load themselves up with debt that they couldn't pay back, and then expect the banks to write off some of those loans when they couldn't pay back. Uh, now that the bankruptcy act or the bankruptcy code came into place. Uh, the same, uh, you know, managements of those companies realize that if they if they default and they don't pay back their debt, uh, the banks are going to take their companies and sell them to someone else. That uh, fear has brought about a large amount of uh, consolidation. So uh, banks actually uh, were paid back most of their loans and reduced a lot of the lending to corporate entities between 2015 and 2021. So corporate debt actually stayed flat through this time. It was mostly retail loans that increased during this time. So leverage from a company perspective has actually come down. It's only now in the last maybe six or eight months that you're seeing a a resumption of leverage being taken by the uh, corporate sector. Even the banking sector has been severely leveraged. So a lot of banks were in deep trouble again because they couldn't get paid by the... the, In India, uh, corporate borrowers actually don't borrow from the bond market. They borrow directly from banks. So that puts the banks under stress where the corporates can't pay. So the banking system also went into a massive stress sector. The banking sector is dominated by public sector banks, in the sense banks owned by the government. So uh, they used to be about 70, they used to be about 80%, now they're about 65% of the banking system. But these public sector lenders were the ones that were most in trouble. They consolidated, they merged a bunch of those banks together. And uh, over the last few years, even those banks have gotten some more strength. So uh, in terms of leverage, uh, the overall system is far lower levered than it was in, say, 2010 or 2011. So um, we we are unlikely to have a similar kind of a banking crisis. I think the US has done the same thing. It's Europe that seems to have gone bonkers on leverage. And Japan, I I mean, that's a different story. But India uh, has actually managed to cut down leverage, mostly because everybody was in trouble, so they had to fix things. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Deepak, you mentioned uh, briefly there uh, oil companies in India and here in the West that's been uh, talked about a lot as having a a secular trend higher because of underinvestment. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, oil and gas, any kind of exploration companies in India. How do they look fundamentally? Uh, Is the underinvestment dynamic as severe there as it is in the States? Talk about that for a little time here. Oh, yeah, of course, we we don't have too much onshore gas in India, so or oil and gas in India. So whatever little that is done is actually, oh, there's a big, large public sector company called ONGC, Oil and Natural Gas Corporation. They actually own, have a bunch of oil wells in uh, offshore in India on the seas. They also have partnered with a bunch of other country uh, companies, some including Rosneft in Russia, including in Venezuela, including a bunch of other places. So there's uh, most of our oil exploration pieces terribly underinvested also because we don't have too much natural gas or oil uh, in India itself. So um, whatever little is there, there's, a, there's another company called Reliance. It's a private sector company that has a, a, a bunch of oil exploration blocks. Uh, there have been a lot of blocks and a lot of uh, uh, exploration that's happened, but because it's either deep sea or uh, in very inhospitable uh, land areas, uh, it costs way too much to uh, try and get oil out of uh, uh, out of India. To tell you, the south of India, which is the V-shaped peninsula, that entire thing is actually a plateau. So to go down to any meaningful depth, you actually have to break through a significant amount of rock and that's uh, just inefficient and just way too expensive. Uh, Even if there was a lot of oil down there, it would be too expensive to drill and uh, take out. So there's not that much in terms of investment that happened in India, but oil and gas companies in India, largely they import crude. Crude is our largest import. Um, uh, uh, so much so that it makes up for most of the current account deficit in India. So crude oil, we import crude oil. We also have a large amount of uh, refining capacity. So we, uh, a lot of private sector and public sector companies have built refining capacities. They convert uh, into petrochemicals and diesel and petrol and so on. And um, uh, uh, the uh, many of the oil companies then, of course, uh, retail that, through, through networks in fuel networks in in India um, we don't have that much in terms of oil exploration uh, in a meaningful way and gas we have barely any gas in fact right now what's happening seems to be that uh, some of our uh, companies who have long-term contracts for uh, supply of gas from some uh, sources outside of India uh, they're actually seeing the contracts getting broken. And the penalty is being paid because gas prices went so high that it was actually cheaper to pay the penalty to break the contract rather than deliver the gas in India. 
So, you know, it's been a it's been a weird kind of a situation where you thought you had gas supplies locked in and suddenly you find out that you don't have any gas and then a lot of plants can't operate. So, uh, but again, you know, we, India is uh, not so dependent on natural gas itself. Most of our power plants are coal uh, and there's a lot of coal available in India. So that part, you know, I know it's not green and all that stuff, but at least it keeps the lights on. Yeah, no, that, that's an interesting point. You, you mentioned that you do a lot of, with the portfolio side, uh, focus on momentum. What sectors in India's markets are having the most uh, and strongest momentum? I mean, yeah, obviously energy has been a big one here in the States, but is it is it similar in India? Are there other areas which are showing uh, renewed strength, perhaps? Talk about some of the momentum dynamics you're seeing. So momentum, of course, uh, you've got both short-term and long-term momentum. Right now, it seems to be in the banking sector. Banking has finally seen credit growth after about eight or nine years. So both the stock prices and in terms of credit growth, we're seeing the largest amount of momentum in banks. And right now, as results are coming in, because the, the September quarter results are just starting to trickle in, almost all banks seem to be doing extremely well. Um uh, on results and and the stock prices also have been doing uh, reasonably well. There have been different pockets of interest. Last year, for instance, information technology or IT services did really well. Um, uh, earlier this year, pharmaceuticals uh, those that those uh, those companies pharmaceutical companies did really well. Most of them, of course, contract manufacturers or they make generics uh, which are sold. Uh, into the US and in Europe and so on. Uh, but there's also local uh, drug manufacturers who've, uh, who did well in the early part of this year. Recently, it's been banks that have kind of taken over and auto. So autos had about a five-year, you know, um, and five years of nothingness in the auto space. India sells less cars a month than France, I think, roughly. Uh, and we're terribly under you know, uh, uh, penetrated in the, uh, you know, four-wheel car, four, four-wheeler uh, uh, or, or, you know, a car, passenger car territory. Uh, but still, uh, sales have been, you know, going down or have not increased in a major pace. It's only this year, post, um, after COVID, you know, there's been a lot of revenge buying to the extent that some cars, if you book, if you want to buy a car today, it'll take you a year before uh, uh, the car will be delivered to you because there's so much demand. So car manufacturers have started to see a lot of momentum in stock prices as well. Um, I think that's that's primarily the large sectors. There are a bunch of others as well. The electric vehicle, uh, you know, ecosystem has been seeing a lot of interest. So that part, uh, as new capacity seems to be coming on board and as new deals are being announced, some of those companies are doing really well. We don't have a Tesla equivalent yet, uh, but uh, we have some, you know, uh, some of the local manufacturers. India has a very interesting dynamic. We actually have a lot of car manufacturers in India, but that's also because India puts a 100% duty on any car that's manufactured outside India and brought in here. So um, that's just to protect the Indian industry itself. But uh, that also means that India has has had to build a lot of um, capacity and research. And some of the research is starting to show in some of the manufacturers in the electric areas. Um, 
and uh, of course you know this they're really small cars relative to um uh, what you might see in the us or in germany or in europe but uh, uh, that's that's another part of it that's that's coming around so momentum wise um things change now you know probably on a monthly basis uh, but um, as of now i would say you know those are the large sectors that that are sure seeing some momentum um there is actually downward i mean the number of stocks showing momentum are more in the small and mid cap areas now than in the large cap areas that's also because the market sentiment has been very weak in the last uh, maybe 4 or 5 months um it's only now starting to come back to life so you're seeing uh, uh and as results come in we're actually seeing uh downward momentum more than upward momentum so when a company announces good results sometimes the stock uh falls 5 to 10% uh, uh especially if it's a large cap stock so there is some kind of uh downward momentum more than there is upward momentum in the large caps you mentioned um manufacturing i'm curious to hear more about your thoughts on manufacturing in india in the context of you know ongoing tensions with china um which probably are not going to abate anytime soon um talk us through how Uh, geopolitical risks with the relationships that many countries have with china how that benefits or maybe doesn't benefit uh, india okay so this is weird because i guess uh, india is uh, one of the largest non crude imports that uh, india does is from china so we actually are one of china is one of our biggest trade partners but there are also geopolitical tensions around the borders and there's there you know fights that happen at the border and so on so india has this geopolitical risk of uh, on one side this pakistan on the other side this china and there there's always some kind of tension going on either either side but um, um trade has largely been you know independent of it however uh, recently this covid issues in china especially their zero covid policy and the closing of ports and all that stuff that kind of did two things first because india imported so much from china there was a big problem because our companies which manufactured pretty much anything there would be some kind of input from china we don't for instance make led bulbs um uh, we just import them from china and kind of indian manufacturers put their label on it and then sell it so uh, they're more traders than manufacturers so they had to build a lot of that some some of that capacity uh, inside of uh india and because of that there was more capex that happened in the last 2 or 3 years india um the uh, provided more incentives to shift more manufacturing to india so there's something called a, a production linked incentive that allows us uh, allows companies in india to now if they manufacture in india uh they based on their production they get a little bit of a subsidy uh this is to avoid uh um over dependence on china in a lot of ways and that's not because of the geopolitical tensions just because china is not sending stuff out their the stuff is getting delayed for sometimes weeks and months um uh, but also geopolitically speaking i think the world has come to an understanding that you know you need to have a lot more uh, uh manufacturing inside your country so you can protect yourself when things uh you know go bad so there is that understanding as well uh but the benefit also that comes to india is because not only are indian 
companies seeing this as a risk to depend too much on China. It's also worldwide that everybody is looking at this and saying we can't have so much of our dependence on China. Can we find alternative sources for some of the stuff that we use? So whether it is APIs in the pharma space, whether it is uh, core chemicals or intermediate chemicals, uh, whether it is auto parts, if you uh, only depend on China and China has at some point uh, a stranglehold on that space, uh, it hurts uh, potential manufacturing deals for everybody else in the world. So everybody's trying to diversify. And part of that diversification happens to come to India uh, right now. Is is It's coming as we speak. And so more of, uh, more of our companies are getting... Uh, uh, manufacturing setups. So it's not just publicly listed companies. It's also uh, companies uh, that are listed in the US or Europe that are setting up new plants in India. So there's a bit of that that's actually starting to move. It's an early part of this ecosystem So because manufacturing, setting up and moving things around takes um, at least a four or five year cycle. And I'd say it's more like a 10 year cycle. So unless, I mean, unless this continues for another four or five years, Uh, we're not going to see the biggest benefit of it come uh, to the Indian economy. And I think uh, uh, it's still early days, but like car manufacturing is largely, at least for the most part, most cars that are sold in India are made in India. Uh, It isn't so in most of the other industries. Uh, So that part, the equation is very skewed. It's sometimes 90, 95% imports. So that's probably going to get substituted over the next maybe uh, three or four years. India is a very large consumption economy. So um, we're we're the only only country among the BRIC who actually runs a current account deficit. Uh, And we're one of the largest consumption economies outside of China and the US. So um, because of that, you know, just changing the import substitution from 95% imports to even 75% imports, uh, that will change the game quite substantially. We're seeing this happen, but again, early days. Yeah, and that, that consumption point is an important one, right? Because I think that's always been the argument broadly for emerging markets, right? As more and more wealth are created, people want new and better things. They want to uh, enjoy the good life, right? So they they spend more on things that would otherwise be more expensive and hopefully have more quality. And a part of that, obviously, is also around food. Right, so I'm given the volatility in the agriculture space, uh, Deepak. I'm curious, um, how do you think about volatility when it comes to uh, areas like wheat or other core staples in one's diet? Um, has has that been a source of stress for uh, Indian consumers? Just talk about how food uh, prices have have impacted uh, spending power. Well, this is interesting because India's food inflation has been relatively low. India produces most of the food that it eats. So uh, it ends up, uh, so for instance, a lot of the staple uh, uh, food like wheat and rice is produced by India. It's one of, we are one of the largest producers in the world. In fact, we have a massive surplus. And one of the things that happened earlier this year, was an interesting story there, uh, this, the, uh, in, because wheat prices in the world went up so much, um, uh, some of the Indian wheat producers said, instead of selling it in India, why don't we just export it? And then India, because so the government, because they saw this and they said, okay, prices in India will rise uh, and in, it'll give, you know, there'll be a lot of inflation and the poorer people will not be able to afford food. They actually said, 
they ban the exports of wheat. So, uh, so that also happens where the government comes in and says, well, you're not allowed to export this, even if you get a better price outside. So uh, in that context, domestically, at least, we've not felt the pinch too much of food inflation going too, uh, too high. Uh, certain elements of imported, uh, 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 imported uh, items of food, uh, they've gone up quite substantially, but then there's a very small amount of population that actually consumes those. And that might be anything from uh, imported chocolates to imported um, uh, you know, milk products and so on, which uh, are relatively uh, higher end consumption. Uh, core milk consumption is all service from domestic sources. And that hasn't seen a significant increase in price um, other than in pocket. So we had actually much higher inflation last year. Uh, maybe early, we had vegetable inflation because of uh, of, of a problem in production and supply. And over the last year or so, we've actually narrowed things down. In fact, food inflation is likely to go down substantially in the next two months because when winter comes in, the uh, harvest kind of comes into the markets and usually by December, prices of food fall quite dramatically. So uh, we're expecting now inflation to actually come down in the next few months rather than uh, go up in the food territory. Uh, but I see how this affects discretionary spending in um, the U.S. Here, it's not so much uh, uh, as an impact. However, India is a relatively poor country. So I think uh, pe for the people who do have, uh, you know, discretionary in, uh, income that gives them the ability to spend in a discretionary way, for them, food is such a small part of their overall basket that uh, uh, it won't matter at all. In fact, uh, for, for for India, food is a. Uh, I mean, at, at the for the people who make reasonable amounts of money, um, that's probably just about ten percent of India's population. So, for one point four billion, there's probably just about 100, 150 million people who actually make um, incomes of the of the kind that gives them a lot of discretionary income to be able to spend in the first place. That's mostly the population that you might see on Twitter. Or, Facebook or uh, or something like that. Um, uh, although you know we we have 1.4 billion people, but yes, uh, having said that, this um, the the inflation that you see um, affects the poor. So government the government will not allow food prices to go out of control. That's what at least they've learned from their past. You know political. Uh, 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 you know, whiplash or throwbacks that have come to them that they shouldn't let food prices go out of hand. All right, maybe for the remaining uh, 10 minutes or so, again, everybody here, you know, please make sure you follow Deepak. I know most of my conversations tend to focus on uh, on U.S. investing, but I think it's actually, this is actually a super uh, interesting conversation. It's good to just help people think more broadly about where to put capital at risk um, and different opportunities outside of the home bias that uh, everybody naturally has. You put you you wrote a book, uh, Money Wise: Timeless Lessons on Building Wealth. I love the cover, uh, which which basically shows uh, two letters uh, where it's either fake or fact. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, fake things that people refer to when it comes to investing. And I don't mean necessarily fake from the standpoint of intentionally being fake, but a lot of things you can argue don't really matter or have predictive power that people will say confidently uh, typically does. 
Walk us through a little bit. Um, first of all, why did you write the book? Uh, and what are some of the those timeless lessons that, whether you're an investor in India or an investor in the U.S. or China or anywhere in the world, that uh, what are some of those lessons that people should should focus most on? Okay, yeah. First, my motivation for writing the book it was I, so we we manage uh, since we since we manage money. Uh, our problem, of course, is that we can't. Uh, um, you know, we have a certain minimum limit. It's about a hundred and effectively a little bit less than a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Uh, maybe or that you have to have before we can manage your money. But uh, there are lots of people who don't have that kind of money in the first place, and they they're mostly struggling to find information that is both valid, trustable, and you know, explained in a simple kind of way. Because uh, people in finance, people like us, we tend to complicate matters by using big words and jargon and uh, stuff that just confuses the hell out of people. So. I thought, you know, it's time to write a book. It just kind of speaks to the person in a in a more uh, simple, easy to understand manner and just gives everybody a framework on how to kind of build uh, wealth over the longer term. So you, uh, one of the things that I keep talking about is take care of three things. So first thing you want to take care of is your hygiene. And the hygiene is simple. You've got to have an insurance policy that takes care of your health. India health insurance is very cheap relative to the US. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, and of course, hospital costs are also much lower than the US. Uh, so uh, relatively speaking, a family of four would probably be okay with getting a cover that's just about 50, limited to about $15,000 per year. And for that, they might pay just of the order of $300 um, uh, of course, I know as a percentage basis, it's much higher, but $300 per year is all you might need to uh, uh, cover a family of four. Uh, you know, so it's it's a relatively small amount, uh, but I think people should take care of that uh, first. Uh, you know, you can get private insurance. Your employer does not. You don't have to depend on your employer for insurance. And even if you do, get a private policy anyway because it's relatively cheap. Uh, the second thing is you should take care of life insurance. So something happens to you after you die. This is what, uh, you know, uh, so something happens to you and you die. Your family needs to be taken care of. So you got to um, you got to take care of, make sure you take care of them. And there's a simple way to calculate how much you need. And the reason why it's more, it's different from the U.S. is the U.S. usually has had very low inflation. So you can just take your annual income and multiply it by some. 15 or 20 or something like that and say, well, that's the kind of insurance you're going to need. But it's not the same in India because costs keep going up at a much higher level. Our average inflation tends to be between 5 and 7% a year. So if you were to extrapolate that into the future, what you might think is a lot of money today will not be a lot of money 20, 25 years down the line. So uh, the calculation factors are a little different. So, you know, I just kind of ironed that out in the book. And then you create something called, I call an emergency fund. This is, if you break a leg, you can't go to office, you can't go to work, you're fired from your job, you need at least six to eight money, months of money in the bank, put that together. And, you know, none of this money should be risked. So it can just be in a, a equivalent of a CD, we call it an FD, a fixed deposit with a bank, uh, so that you don't kind of risk it in, in equities or something like that. And then you build wealth by... Uh, Using simple asset allocation, you can choose to directly invest in stocks, which is the most complicated part of things, or you could go down the, I will just go and buy a passive 
mutual fund route. And because in India, uh, interest rates have always been relatively higher. Uh, we uh, actually can make about 6 to 7% a year just on fixed income. So I think everybody should have a mix of fixed income and equities. And uh, here's a simple way to, you know, I've given a kind of a simple way to kind of plan that out. And uh, in the process, introducing how uh, how much risk uh, one tends to take. The difference between the fake and the fact point is some of these things are obvious to us, but we tend to make uh, the wrong decisions based on what someone says. So for, for instance, someone will come to you and say, well, you know, this stock is doubled. I invested something in it and it's it's made so much money. Uh, much of this attracts you to say, well, I should also put my money into stocks, but then I can double my money. because. But then most, of the, most people don't tell you that they put their money in eight stocks or 10 stocks and six of them did nothing or went, you know, in fact, they lost a lot of money in them. You're going to highlight the one or two that actually did very well. And uh, uh, because they do that, uh, you think that everything you put into the stock market will end up doubling. So you've got to kind of step back and say, well, that's not the case. This is how, uh, you know, and money is made for the for the most time it's made in the waiting. You know, you just have to invest and wait while returns come. Uh, mostly you get attracted to people who tell you about how you can make money in two months or three months and so on. And this is not just in India, it's worldwide. We saw it in the GameStop and AMC sagas in the US. You see, we see that all the time in India. But uh, uh, like this, there are lots of other myths as well. They tell you you have, to, you have to start saving in your 20s in order to get enough money for retirement. And I don't think that's the right uh, way to think of things. Even if you didn't do anything, in your 30s, you probably make a lot more money in your 30s than you did in your 20s. And therefore, you have a lot more money to save. Uh, in fact, uh, by the time you finished your 30s and your early 40s, you probably finished paying for your house because you're, you've managed to pay out, pay down the entire uh, uh, mortgage. And that's when you get some disposable income that allows you to save for a longer time. So uh, even that's a myth that I kind of... Uh, try. So that like this, there are about 10 or 15 different things that people might tell you but aren't exactly true or the actual uh, uh, the actual ways to do things are non-intuitive and uh, I kind of go through them in the book. I wrote the book primarily because uh, I was telling people this all the time. We had, I had a bunch of articles at CapitalMind.in where we talk about each of these things. Oh. Or how credit cards sucker you or how, uh, uh, you know, mutual funds, how to, how, how was the different ways to evaluate how uh, to select which kind of mutual fund you want or which kind of, uh, what's the kind of stock portfolio you need to build and so on. I just put that all together and it became a book. Available on Amazon for those that are uh, curious, has some great, uh, great reviews. Uh, everybody here, appreciate those that joined. This was a, to me, certainly a very educational conversation. Uh, Deepak, appreciate you spending the hour with us. Very, very thoughtful conversation. I'll have this as a podcast soon enough, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. I'm doing another space at 5 Eastern uh, talking about macro, uh, because macro is always a popular area when it comes to spaces. Thank you, Deepak. I do thanks so much, Michael, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, let me know your thoughts. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants 
are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.